Mm -hmm. Welcome to the History of LA SCIA one-on-one -on -one sessions. I'm Julian Francis. And this series celebrates the SCIA rocksteady and vintage reggae scenes in Southern California and beyond through insightful conversations with legends and modern day players, including those behind the scenes. And I tell you, there are so many people behind the scenes. This is the 21st one-on-one uh, -on -one session and our sixth in this new podcast and YouTube format. Thanks to all regular viewers and supporters. Thanks to first timers and thanks to returning viewers and listeners. Today's guest is musician, podcaster, blabber, and author Mark Wasserman, who's coming to us from the East Coast. Mark, how are you? I'm very good, Junior. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, sir. I want to say welcome and congratulations on your new book, Skia Boom. <laughs> an American skia and reggae oral history, which has just been start, which just started shipping out to fans uh, this week, if I'm not mistaken. Those who pre-ordered. That's right. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, people have been very kind. They've started to post pictures um, on social media of when they get the book, which uh, is, you know, I, I can't tell you what, how that makes me feel. You know, it's a crazy surreal experience to see people sort of uh you know excited uh, about the book and about american ska music and american ska history so it, it warms my heart because in a sense you answered the first question i was going to ask you what it felt like to actually hold the book in your hand to uh, me it seemed as if it's almost like a mother holding her new or first newborn baby for the first time 100 percent. that is exactly what i said to my wife uh we went down to the warehouse last Friday where the book is being distributed. And it turns out it wasn't very far from where I live. And um, the people who worked there were lovely. And they said, you want to see your book? It was like a nurse saying, you want to see your baby, you know? <laughs> so um, yeah, to hold it in my hands was very much like the first time I held my son. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, a crazy, wonderful, frightening feeling. <laughs> because uh, you know you created something. Oh, thank you. You created something, and uh, and uh, it takes on a life of its own. You know, you're you um, you put it out in the world, and then it 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 hopefully interacts with people, and you you know you you've done good, and you 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 raise the, the child well, and hopefully this I did this book. You know, I, I have felt a lot of pressure to um, to do this book correctly, and to make sure that I got it right. So. I hope I hope that I did, and I hope that people um, respond to it, and 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 you know that it gets the bands, many of the bands who are in this book, who many people might not be aware of, but were pioneers for taking Jamaican music and making it uh, an you know American version of of Jamaican music. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, is this your first book? Yes. Let's hope book. it won't be your last. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. You know, mm -hmm. I, it was. Um, it was a humbling experience to write a book, but uh, but one of the most satisfying creative experiences, you know, as, as a musician, uh, I like to be in a recording studio. I like the creative process with other musicians, but this was a different type of experience. Uh, you know, as a bass player, I'm used to being part of a rhythm team and I like to be in a band and, you know, ska and reggae bands, you know, are big usually. So it's, it's always, Good to have people around me. I've always been in bands with six or seven other people, and to write this book by myself was an interesting experience. Um, it was 
all up to me. You know, I'm used to mm -hmm. having a drummer <laughs> that I can uh, be part of a rhythm team with. And so um, it took me a little while to get used to, to, to having to rely on myself to do it all. Mm. So you mentioned a little while, how long of an interview and writing process was it from start to finish? It was from a little bit, to finish. Eh. Yeah, it was a little bit over three and a half years. Mm. A lot of things have happened in between. A lot of things have happened. Uh, <laughs> the world so why was it so important for you to take that approach, actually? You know, quoting um, people um, during the interview, as opposed to just writing a book, giving your analysis and your friend's analysis. Right. There were a couple of reasons why I decided to do an oral history. Um, first of all, because many of the bands that are, are featured in this book are not very familiar to people. I felt it was very important for those musicians to tell me their story directly, for me not to filter that story. Um, I wanted an authentic experience for people to hear directly from those people what it was like in those very early days in the 70s and 80s to um, fall in love with ska and reggae music when it wasn't popular here in this country, to do something that other people weren't doing and what that was like. And mm -hmm. I felt that those people could tell that story much, much better than if I told, wrote a narrative about that. But also I'm a huge fan of oral histories. I think it's the most authentic and real way to learn something about whatever it is you're interested in but particularly about music, um, I find that I want to hear directly from the people who had the experience. I don't want some necessarily someone else to filter that narrative through their own, whatever their biases are or whatever their interests are. I want to hear directly from the people <coughs> who were there. Yeah, let's talk about you as a musician. You are a founding member of the uh, and bass player for the New Jersey bass Skiaban uh, Bigger Thomas, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. First of all, the name and how the band came about and how you came about as a bass player. Multiple questions, you can take it anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere. Um, well, I, I fell in love with music at a very, very young age. Um, my parents played music uh, in our home all the time. And um, I was brought into the world of music through listening to the radio initially. And then I uh, asked my parents so many questions mm. about songs that I would hear. Who's singing? Why are they singing about that? What is this song about? I think I tired them out. And so they took me to, my mother took me to, um, in the town we were living at the time, there was a, it was like a five and dime store that also happened to have 45 singles. And she said to me, all the songs on the radio that you're hearing are here in the store. Here's $2. You can buy, I guess at the time they were 50 cents each. You can buy four of these 45s. And that opened a whole new world to me of, um, of loving music, but also collecting music and saying, oh, I heard this song on the radio. I need to go buy this song because they don't play it enough. I want to play it over and over and over and over again. And through that process, I became um, interested in how songs are actually put together. What's a chorus? What's a verse? 
why did they make the choice for, mm. for this sound? But mind you, I didn't know how to play an instrument. So it was really more as a fan. Um, when I was 14 years old uh, in 1979, someone gave me the specials first record. They played it for me. And um, it was very much like a lightning bolt moment, like the skies parted and light came down almost in a divine way. And I sat there uh, like this the whole time this record was playing. I did not know what they were singing about. I couldn't understand, <laughs> couldn't understand the English guys, what they were saying. And I definitely couldn't understand what the Jamaican guys were saying. That was it, right? <laughs> but, but there was something about the music and the energy that uh, spoke to me. And um, that was the beginning of my journey. Uh, I became obsessed. You know, I was already into music, but the specials were the door that opened for me into uh, Jamaican music, all mm -hmm. forms of Jamaican music. I started with two-tone, so the, the, the specials, the beat, the selector, UB40, Steel Pulse, all of what England had to offer. But um, because I was so passionate, I would spend hours reading album covers. I would look at the credits and the liner notes. And that was in, in, in the beginning, like a map for me. And it took a long time, but that map took me back, right? Nice. And also, I, when, when some of the record stores I would go to, some of the people who worked in them would take the time to answer my questions. So I would say, I really like the specials. What other music is there in the store that's mm -hmm. like that? And they would go, oh, wait a minute, the specials? No, 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 you need to listen to the Scottalites. You need wow. to listen to Laurel Aiken. You need to listen to Bob Marley. So I give those record store clerks a lot of credit. They didn't help me too much, but they basically pointed me in the direction and said, go over there, look at those albums, buy one of those. And so that was the beginning of a, of a process of falling in love with ska, and, or 60s ska, rock steady, um, reggae that sort of started with, with two-tone and, and the special. So that's the beginning of my personal interest in music. Mm -hmm. I still didn't know how to play an instrument. Um, it was a few years later that I learned that there was a ska scene in New York City. I lived in New Jersey, which is, I lived about an hour from New York. And um, there was a newspaper at the time called The Village Voice. And in the back of The Village Voice for all these listings, there were clubs all over New York in the 80s. And any kind of music you wanted to hear was there. And um, I saw at a club called CBGB's, which I... I had heard of, but had never been to. It was New York versus Boston. So it was the Toasters versus Bim Scala Bim, who were two big American ska bands at the time. And I said to a friend of mine, you want to go to this? He said, sure. And that was another lightning bolt moment <laughs> where I, I stood in a crowd at CBGB's with people going crazy around me, like dancing, pushing, shoving. And it was again, like, like divine light came down as I was watching this show. And I heard a little voice say to me, you can do this too, <laughs> right? Mind you, I'd never picked up an instrument in my life, but I went home and I said to my mother, I want to play an instrument. And she said, well, okay, great, what instrument? I said, I don't know. I don't know, but I want to play an instrument. I want to learn an instrument. But 
Shortly after that, a friend of mine told me there were a lot of musicians in England who had started bands not really knowing how to play their instruments. Mm. All the members of UB40, for the most part, didn't know how to play their instruments before they started UB40. Paul Simonon, who's a hero of mine from The Clash, did not know how to play the bass guitar when The Clash started. And to me, that's all I needed to hear. So I said to my mother, I want a bass guitar. So she bought me a very, very cheap bass guitar out of a Sears catalog. I want to say it was maybe $39. And um, that was the very beginning for me. This bass guitar arrived at my house and I had no idea what to do with it. I, you know, I stared at it for a couple of weeks because I didn't know how to play it or what to do with it at all. But um, we got acquainted and I, you know, I slowly figured out what to do. A lot of time I didn't know if I was in the right key or what notes I was playing, but I would listen to records and I would do my best to try and match the bass lines that I was hearing with what I could play on, on my guitar. So that was the very start for me. Wow. Wonderful baptism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So and, uh, wasted on the subject of Bigger Thomas. What are some of the highlights, uh, career highlights of um, the band that shaped your thinking and expanded your love for Jamaican music? Some of the bands that influenced me? No, man, it? the band that you started, Bigger Thomas. Oh, the band that I started. Um, you know, that was another interesting experience. Um, I had started another band with some friends, more like a punk rock band because we really didn't know what we were doing and that was easy. But I always wanted to play ska. I wanted to play music like the Specials and the English Beat and the Selector. I wanted to be in a band with black and white people because two-tone was so influential for me. It was, um, it provided a philosophy uh, and a way of living and looking at the world. Those bands gave me an education and so I wanted to take that education and do something with it. Also to take that learning and, 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 and create something new for myself. So I um, did what we used to do before the internet. I put up flyers um, all over where I was living. I was living in New Brunswick, New Jersey at the time, which is where Rutgers University is. And um, I put up a flyer saying I was wanting to start a ska band. And it was like a, a movie one by one these, 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 this group of misfits responded to my, to my ad. And uh, within about three weeks of me putting that, that ad up, we had a band, which was kind of crazy. And um, we were very lucky. The first show we played was in front of 500 people. We opened up for this, this band <laughs> called the New York, you. I'm not kidding you, for the New York citizens. We opened for the New York citizens who were in my book. Um, and uh, it was like being on a rocket ship ride um it just started very quickly right away um, there's no turning back <laughs> no, no turning back and once you're on that ride you're on that ride uh, so the seven of us kind of learned together how to be a band but we we had quite quite an experience i mean ultimately mm. we got to open for um special beat who were a band that featured members of the specials and the english beat that was yes, near the end of our run but we played with um a, a number of, of bands, uh, um, you know, we, we, we played with, you know, big bands of the time as an opening act. I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember some of them. It was a mix of like hardcore bands, punk bands, some reggae bands, but um, we happened to be playing ska music in the late eighties and early nineties, which is what I documented in my book when 
it was starting to get popular. People were open to it. And um, we happened to be at the right place in the right time so that um, being the only ska band from New Jersey was, was a, a good thing because we, we were doing something that no one else was doing and clubs were willing to book us and give us a chance. And mm -hmm. we worked hard and we practiced and rehearsed a lot and we got better and better. So, you know, that's really the, the, the beginning of my story as a musician. So Bigger Thomas, where the name came from, Bigger Thomas. Uh, I don't see the connection with that. I'm sure. So um, we started with the name Panic, eh. which, was, uh, which was very representative of our live experience. Uh, we were quite a, 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 there was a lot of movement on stage. I mean, the specials and the English Beat and the Selector were influential because the first time I would saw them when I got a copy of Dance Craze, which is a movie about two-tone, um, I couldn't believe how much energy Neville and Linval and Ranking Roger had. I mean, it was as much fun to watch them as it was to listen to them. So we incorporated that into our sound. So panic seemed to make a lot of sense. But as things started to roll for us, we got a letter from an established band called Panic, who basically said, if you don't, we're going to sue you if you don't change your name, because we already own this name. So I happened to be uh, taking a class at, in college at the time, um, an African-American studies class, and we were reading a book called Native Son by Richard Wright, who's a very famous African-American uh, writer. And the main character in Native Son's name is Bigger Thomas. And so while we were arguing over a name, I said to my bandmates, what about Bigger Thomas? And uh, they all said, wow, that's, that's an interesting name, yeah. And um, you know, two of my bandmates are, are African-American and they were both looking at me like, dude, like that's a heavy name, man. Are, are you, we're, really? And I said, yeah, why not? Why not? So we chose the name Bigger Thomas. And I think that, that had a lot to do with our perspective mm -hmm. on the world. And we also were trying to make a statement. I think we were, trying to educate people who are coming to see us that it wasn't that ska music wasn't just fun, happy dance music that there, you know, what well, the lessons we took from Jamaican artists was that there was a opportunity to, to make a statement or to comment on social things that were going mm -hmm. on. And um, that's what we tried to do. And we felt the name was, was um, appropriate for, for what we were trying to say. And which is one of the things you mentioned, um, trying to say, uh, I've always felt that uh, American bands, whether they're reggae or skia or rocksteady, that plays Jamaican music, always taking a, a beachy approach. La, 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 la. Uh, um, I guess because, of course, a lot of these people are not necessarily struggling. Uh, you know, they have things relatively okay. They're not suffering from oppression and exploitation as the musicians in Jamaica were when they made this music. So I, not, I haven't vocalized it too many times, but I've always felt that, that there's much, much more to the music than just chenge, chenge on the beach, you know, and jump and dance. So, you know, a man like Dan Drum and the deep, you know, uh, Count Azzy, those men are deep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, it I, is uh, what it is. Uh, I, I but agree. So I, I'm glad that you saw that from the beginning. That there's I did. a need to um, go beyond the surface. You know, there's a, 
a Bob Marley line from a song, who feels it knows it. And I think yes. that was something that we took very seriously. And that's a 60s song by Bob Marley anyhow. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, right. and I was always drawn to Jamaican um, songs that, that reflected struggle. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I came from, I, I, I can't complain about my life, but I came from a broken family. You know, if anybody even uses that term anymore, but my, because my family, all the families are broken now. Right. Right. But back then, you know, if your parents were divorced and, you know, I was being raised by my mother, you know, I had a different experience and, you know, she had a tough time, uh, making a living. And, and, and so my perspective was maybe a little bit different than, than other people. But um, maybe because of that, I was always sort of drawn to sufferers music mm -hmm. and Jamaican music is, is wonderful for um, expressing that experience. And so there was something about that that uh, resonated with me. And so when I started this band with these other people, that was something we wanted to, you know, we wanted to reflect our own experience. And, you know, look, we had two um, members of our band were, were um, men of color. And so that they, and, and two of them wrote the lyrics for these songs. And so in many ways that our songs reflected their experiences as young black men in the eighties. And so that was part of, part of our, um, you know, our experience and their experience. So I agree with you. I think at times American ska music loses a little bit of where it comes from. Uh, the soul of, of the music has sort of gotten watered down. And um, I love that ska music is still relevant in the 21st century, but I do sometimes uh, feel like it could use a little bit more of a social conscience or that it could, it could reflect more of some of the issues that uh, we're dealing with in this country, you know, right now. Yes, mm -hmm. thanks for taking a stand and supporting us in our struggle and supporting us oppressed people. Let's uh, dive somewhat uh, in some areas of your book. Uh, talk about the importance of the Harder They Come movie and soundtrack as it relates to the birth of Skia and reggae here in the United States. I don't think you can overstate how important that record and that yes. movie were to <laughs> Um, creating, um, baptizing, if to use your word, a number of American white musicians who changed their lives because of seeing that movie and hearing that soundtrack. Um, you know, that movie was very popular in college towns around the U.S. when it came out. And, and in some places like Boston, it played for years, um, a midnight movie every Friday night for years and years in Boston. But it, it was like that in many places. I, I think when you see that movie for the first time, it's, it's striking, it's beautiful to see Jamaica in color. You know, a lot of times when you listen to Jamaican music and you live in the United States, you don't really know what it's like in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, it was an eye opener. Um, and the story is just so compelling. Um, but more importantly, I think the soundtrack, to me, it's a perfect record. I, I mean, 
There's not a song on that album that's not a classic. And so if you need, if you are trying to learn about reggae music, I think that album is the perfect place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and many people did. And it influenced in particular, in the, my book is done in a chronological order. I don't make that clear because I don't want to do all the work for people, but it starts with a band called the Shakers. And then the second chapter is a band called Blue Rhythm Band. And both nice. those bands were formed by um, a group of musicians in Berkeley, California, and a group of musicians, believe it or not, in Kansas City, Missouri, who fell in love with reggae music from listening to The Harder They Come and watching that film and inspired them to stop the music they were playing. In one case, it was rock and roll. In another case, it was jazz and soul and to start playing reggae music, not only playing reggae music, but to study it and to try and play it as authentically as men who had never been to Jamaica in their lives and did not grow up Jamaican could do. And I would say they both have radically different stories, but what impressed me so much about both of them was how important it was to play the music the way it's supposed to be played. Um, To not play rock reggae music Mm -hmm. or not to mutate reggae and mix it with something else, but to literally study the music as an art form. And in the case of the Blue Rhythm Band, they actually traveled to Jamaica, some of the members. Yeah. And they connected with um, the Soul Syndicate Band and formed a relationship with them that was very much like a mentorship where the members of the Soul Syndicate Band basically took them under their wing and um, helped them learn how to play reggae music so well that when Blue Rhythm Band was invited to play Sunsplash in 1983, they completely wowed a a nearly 100% Jamaican crowd with how authentically they could play ska music. Um, They went on at dawn when people were still asleep and they started to play and people started to wake up Mm -hmm. and were confused. And maybe you know this story, Junior, I don't know. No, sir, no. But um, uh, predominantly Jamaican crowd are waking up hearing ska music and they're all standing up and they're rubbing their eyes and they're looking and going, who are these white men playing ska so well? And they, completely overwhelmed this audience. And I think the the thing some of these uh, guys told me was that uh, when Jamaican audiences hear you playing the music the way it's supposed to be played, you can win them over. And yes, they want- They're they bowing reverence. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you're mm-hmm. doing it right, the mm-hmm. crowd will let you know. And, and yes. they went out there very nervous that they might get bottles and, and um, rocks thrown at them, but they did Not didn't. unusual. <laughs> But the opposite happened. And to me, it's a fascinating story where um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> they went back to the home of the music that they loved and were embraced for, for playing it in a way that showed respect and reverence for it as an art form. So um, to answer your question, I, the starting place for them and, and also for the Shakers who had a little bit of a different experience, but in both cases was that album and that film Mm-hmm. Uh, were the paths for both of them to to take uh, in creating in playing as Americans playing reggae music. 
Right. Yeah, the holiday come definitely. What before the holiday come was Millie Small. She sold I think some five million. When you know promoter, uh, producer says five, you know it's probably double that. Uh, so that was the first one that broke Jamaican music to Jamaican music uh, globally. And then now the harder they come. Practically, the move was shown in practically all the English-speaking countries that would include Australia, New Zealand, and, con and countries that were ruled by England. So really, it was ahead of Bob Marley. But man, there's a soundtrack. A couple of years ago, it was listed as, uh, on the US top 100 best, I don't know where it stands now, best movies of all time. Yes, so much credit to the producers and Jimmy Cliff, who is still alive and kicking. But let's go back to um, uh, the home of the Shakers, uh, California, where they're, they're, they're from. You said they're from Berkeley. Uh, you're, uh, the Uptones are also from that area, right? Why was it that um, Bay Area was so special and was so advanced, even though it's farther away from Jamaica than the East Coast and the Midwest? Yeah, that's a it's a great question, and um, the Shakers have a lot to do with that. Actually, um, they played at a club called the Long Branch in Berkeley, and uh, they played there every Sunday night for a year, and um, they sold out this club every Sunday night for a year, playing only Jamaican music. And while that was happening, the club owner said, "There's something going on here." Yes. He connected with a, um, a Jamaican who was living in Berkeley who said, I have connections in Jamaica. I can bring big bands from Jamaica who would love to play here because they can make a decent amount of money. And so what happened was there became, became this, this shuttle of where current bands from Jamaica would come to Berkeley and play. Um, actually, Toots and the Maytals, played a huge show at, uh, in, in San Francisco in the 70s, around the same time that the Shakers were happening. Um, so the word got out in Jamaica that Berkeley was a place to go because the mm. audiences were receptive and you could make really, really good money. So <laughs> uh, the promoters would fly the bands in and they would do two or three shows in the Bay Area and then go back to Jamaica with you know a decent amount of money. And so that's really how the Berkeley and Bay Area sort of became like the-, the, the hub, so to speak? Yes, exactly, uh -huh. of, uh, of reggae in America. Right, and how about the Uptones? Yeah, what so- What did they play? They're from the Bay Area as well, right? Right, they all grew up in Berkeley. They're all like my age, they're my contemporaries. So, uh, you know, now in their 50s, but you know, in the 80s, they were influenced like me by the English beat, they all went to see the English Beat play a show in, in San Francisco. And um, that was the inspiration for them to start a band. They were all in high school together <clears throat> and they just started, they decided by, started by playing ska music. They were all very talented. One of the things that was interesting about Berkeley was um, the public schools there invested in music education. So kids were, um, were uh, encouraged to learn how to play an instrument. And, and they were taught well. A lot of the best jazz musicians in America come from Berkeley for that. I did not know that. Yes. So uh, all these kids were generally Ooh. very good musicians, but they also fell in love with ska, two-tone ska. And right. so um, they took the Bay Area by storm. 
Uh, and the, the crazy thing about it was they were all 16 and 17 years old and they were playing every place you could play. They were like being on, on the, their songs were, were on the radio constantly and they were selling out clubs all over the Bay Area while they were all still going to high school. So um, one of them jokes to me that- Those you know, things don't happen anymore. <laughs> no, but he was joking to me that when he, he told me uh, when he was you know, back out on the dating scene, he used to say to people, I was, a, I was a rock star when I was in high school. And people would say to him, what do you mean? And when he would explain to them what his experience was like, they would be like, yes. I mean, the uptones were in Rolling Stone magazine. So that's how big the uptones were, you know, by in the in the early '80s. They were um, really, at least on the West Coast, uh, probably one of the most popular bands playing uh, an American version of ska. And what has become of them? They broke up, uh, you know, in in the nineteen in mid '80s. So by the time a lot of them were getting ready to go to college, the oh. band ended. All of them are still musicians and they mm -hmm. all, a lot of them still play music in other groups, but the band ended when they were all about 19 or 20 years old. So it was a, it was a short run for about five years um, while they were in high school and, and some in a little bit the first year of college. Wow. And staying with California, talk about the significance of um, this gentleman, Howard Parr and the Unclub and the ah. bands uh, to come out of LA and we move from Northern California to Southern California. The yeah, mad scene, the scene, the box boys, the untouchables, fishbone, and I may have left out some, if you could fill in the blank. Yeah, Howard Parr is an Englishman who um, wanted to get away from Margaret Thatcher for a bit. So uh, <laughs> he uh, took a one-way flight from London to LA because he wanted to come have some sunshine and take a vacation and never left. That speaks lives. volume of his politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He never left. He still lives in L.A., but um, he was very much into music and mm -hmm. uh, he loved two-tone ska and reggae and soul and Motown. And when he got to L.A., he got to L.A., I think, at a time when it was an anything goes type of city. You could, um, whatever your dreams were, you could pretty And much what era was that now? He, he, what era, what year? What era was the uh, anything yeah. goes? You can yeah, yeah. live he, your dream. 1979, he arrived 79. in, mm -hmm. in LA. So um, he wanted to do something with music. And he had an opportunity uh, to begin promoting shows at this little hole in the wall in Silver Lake. Now, I don't know Los Angeles very well, Junior. Maybe you can tell me. But at the, I think Silver Lake is a very nice place right now. But I think... Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, it was more, you know, maybe uh, a different type of neighborhood um, than, than yes. it is. Yes, uh, uh, I know I started going to the Dub Club, which is in perhaps one of the most known clubs in the United States for reggae. So I started going there now in the uh, 90s, I think, somewhere thereabout. Um, and the neighborhood was rough. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Silver Lake was, so was a regentrification now, it's uh, as uh, become sort of an upscale town now or right. city mm. right. because it's right adjacent to um, Hollywood. Right. right. <clears throat> well, uh, at the time, Silver Lake was, I think, a predominantly um, Mexican-American uh, neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And um, Howard took over this club 
and um, had a vision he wanted to create, which was a club that only played ska, reggae, and soul. And he started by booking whatever available bands there were at the time, but he was also a DJ. So he would spin ska and reggae. And it was one of the only places in LA at the time that you could go to hear this because you couldn't, most people couldn't find these records that Howard had. Um, and then he wanted to have live music. And the only band at the time that was playing ska was a band called the Box Boys who are also featured in, in my book. But he also booked um, a, a reggae band from LA called the Babylon Warriors. Who, um, hey, that was my maybe, turn though. Yeah, right, right. Maybe you can maybe you can tell me a little bit about them, but he, they played at the On Club all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, between those two bands and then a band called the Untouchables, right, who started after the Box Boys, uh, the On Club really became the place to go in Los Angeles in the '80s to hear Howard Spin uh, and DJ and to see the Untouchables, to see the Box Boys, to see the Babylon Warriors. Um, Fishbone got their start at the On Club. It was a, one of the first places that they ever played. Um, and it was a place that um, celebrities in LA would go to a lot at that time in the 80s. Like Mick Jagger was seen there. And other people would go there because it had a reputation of being a, a, a fun, great, crazy place to go and have you know a, a, a night out in Los Angeles. Um, <clears throat> but Howard deserves a lot of credit for, in my mind, giving birth to a ska scene in Los Angeles. He created, he had, took, took everything, he had the ingredients to, to make people excited about ska and reggae through that club. Oh. Yeah, thanks for passing that bit of knowledge. I've heard of the club, incidentally, I've, uh, I've never really been there. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, is it still in existence now? No, no, um, I mm. think it's a houseware store now. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But the building still is still there. And mm. uh, I hope uh, to come out to LA soon and make a pilgrimage to, to, to the location just because it, it um, to me, it represents an important physical place that uh, people, a lot of people spend a lot of hours and time being very passionate about ska and reggae. So I want to pay my respects. Yes, sir. I, I'm, I'm going to go find it as well. <laughs> so let's travel to the Midwest and talk about heavy manners. Uh, earlier on, I was telling Eric that I was confusing them with bad manners. And uh, we talk about the blue rhythm, but we also want to have your opinion on what was happening in the Midwest at that time. Yeah. Heavy manners is um, another uh, example of, uh, I think, a group of people who were very influenced by two-tone. What's mm -hmm. interesting about the, the members of Heavy Manners is that they started their band at the same time that the two-tone bands were active. So in 1980 is when Heavy Manners started, which is very, mm -hmm. very early. I mean, it's like 40, over 40 years ago. Uh, very interesting group. Uh, again, black and white members. So sort of taking their... Um, you know, following the road of, of the specials and the beat and selector in terms of uh, trying to bring black and white people together. But um, they were all very much drawn to ska and reggae music. Um, their bass player, Jimmy Williams, was very connected with the reggae scene in Chicago. There was a club in Chicago called the Wild Hair that was one of the first 
all, all reggae clubs in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. And he was an MC there and he DJed there. And so when he started this band, Heavy Manners had a place to play. They started their, their career playing at the Wild Hair. But then crowds were really drawn to them. And they, again, like a lot of bands in my book, started to get more and more popular. Uh, Heavy Manners um, opened up for The Clash, you know, a sold out show for The Clash. They didn't leave Chicago much, but they soon became the most popular band in Chicago. I mean, they sold out shows wherever they played. And I think what's fascinating about them and, and is, is in the book is that um, they opened a show for Peter Tosh. And Peter Tosh was blown away by Heavy Manners. He was blown away by their music, musical um, songs that they did, but also how the crowd reacted and responded to them. And um, I guess uh, he offered to produce a record for them, which is kind of unheard of, I think, to have Peter Tosh, you know, have an opening band open for him and for him to be so impressed that he says, you know what, we should work together. So he, and from what I, for research I've, I've done and people I've spoken to, they were the only band other than his own band that Peter Tosh ever produced. Yeah, right, right. So they went into the studio in Chicago mm -hmm. and they recorded <clears throat> an EP with him. And so, again, I think this is an important story for people to know about. Yes. Uh, because it really does demonstrate how capable they were as musicians and how mm -hmm. someone with Peter, St Peter Tosh's stature felt about them. So, mm -hmm. again, all pre-internet. So why I think it's important that they're in this book, because if they weren't in, in my book, you might not know about them. You might not know their history and that they are responsible in many ways for um, influencing a lot of bands in the Midwest to, um, to start playing ska and reggae as well. Mm -hmm. I, I want to reintroduce it to, uh, reintroduce it. My guest is Mark Wasserman, and I'm presently in conversation. This is his debut book. Skia Boom, an American Skia and Reggae Oral History, which has just been released. Good to have you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. And I hope you'll send my check to our producer, Eric, for, pro for promoting this. <laughs> but, but you know, Mark, uh, I was telling Eric, who you'll be talking to momentarily, that you're a man of great nobility. And, and I say that because you don't do much self-promotion. Uh, you know, having listened to quite a few interviews, you even said in a book that, um, and sometimes we should give people praise before they are dead, you know. I go on Facebook and write how oh, wonderful you are. So I'm telling you now that I was really impressed with some of the interviews that I've done because I did some preparation before I, um, you know, came here tonight. And you, you don't prom you're, you're not a self-promoter. And I'm not sure if it's a good or a bad thing, but evidently it must be a bad thing if you don't, if you promote yourself too much why I'm saying it in this sense. But uh, so I, I admire that about you. And I wish you. you a lot of sales and hope you write more books. <laughs> right, so, so now for the big up in New York, I lived there extensively, all my family are back there. I, I'll be tied to New York forever since my mom is also buried out there. <laughs> Uh, so the terrorists were a unique uh, collaboration with a couple of Jamaican musicians, Ronald Alfonso, he needs no introduction, Lee Perry, I think they work with uh, those musicians and some other ones. Can you tell us about them? Sure. Um, you know, I wanted to do a chapter on the terrorists 
in this book, but unfortunately, I think most of the members have passed uh, and there weren't enough people who could really fill in the story the way that I wanted to tell it. They are uh, a band I feel are worth probably a documentary being made about them because of um, of the story that they have. I mean, you, you, you pointed out, Junior, that they, they worked with, Roland Alfonso was impressed with them enough that he, he was backed by them. They would play um, at a club called Max's Kansas City, uh, which was a rival to CBGB's down in, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And um, there was a member of the terrorists uh, who were all white guys from New Jersey, um, but their drummer was, his, his nickname was Dro, D-R-O. And he sh you know, should have gotten a PhD in, in Jamaican music because he, Maybe you can tell me, Junior, I don't remember. There's a certain number of reggae drum patterns. There's some big number, the 200 or 300 different drum patterns in reggae music, uh, different rhythms, right? Oh, so I, uh, rhythm, yes, but I don't know music. I don't know okay. music. I just play. <laughs> well, just play well, on the radio. I don't um, know anything about music, unfortunately. Oh, you do know a lot about music, but I understand what you mean as a, in terms of... I, I know the rhythms, right, but yeah. uh, in terms of drumming. Uh, so apparently there's, I'm making, I'm getting this number wrong. Let's say there's 250 different drum patterns that a reggae drummer can play, right? Hi-hat, snare, tom, like different things that, that build, are the building blocks of reggae music that we know. So I'm learning now, I see. Yes. Dro I'm in, learned I'm in the, classroom. Yeah. Dro learned them all. <laughs> he learned them all. So he devoted his whole life to being a, a drummer and percussionist, but specifically focused on Jamaican music. Wow. So um, that's what made the terrorists so good, was that Dro was the heartbeat of this band. And mm -hmm. I think that's what drew in people like um, Lee Perry, and Roland Alfonso, because they were so impressed that if they closed their eyes, it didn't matter if he was white or not. He he was one of the best reggae drummers that they had ever heard. So, and uh, what 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 era or era? The again, the, the, the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, I was in New York then. I never heard of them. Yeah, mm -hmm. they uh, they played a residency at Max's, and in fact. Um, a, a few years ago, I was asked to write some liner notes for an album that uh, had never been released. It was finally released called Max's Kansas City. And it's basically um, an album that Roland Alfonso recorded with the terrorists in Brooklyn that was never released, but it's, it's a mostly reworking of Scottalite songs. Um, and when they went into the studio, Roland wasn't convinced necessarily that these guys could do it but after they recorded he came out of the studio and he just he just said i can't believe what i just heard i can't believe that these guys played scottalite songs as well as they did so that's why they're important again a, a, another lost story but another one mm. that, that demonstrates how americans fell in love with reggae and learned yes. you know, devoted their lives mm -hmm. to it and and impressed Jamaican musicians who, who, you know, who were the experts at this. Mm -hmm. And as luck would have it, I used to see Roly quite regularly in Brooklyn. He used to sell records. So I used to run a record store, Park Heights, and he used to come by and sell. 
Rolex. Always humble, but not easy to work with. Because my brother took him to the studio. <laughs> oh, and he rolled it to blow the horn. Do some horns in a song. Rolex said, no, he can't wait. And they went on for like hours. So meanwhile, time is going at the studio. So they say, you know what? <laughs> Two, two stubborn men. <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's call it that. <laughs> yeah, well, then that. that guess, really thing that you don't know music, but you're telling me what to do. You're a new, I assume that's what he's thinking, right? Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that Roland lived in Brooklyn for many, many years. And, yes, and what I understand is that he had a stroke at one point. In Jamaica, then he moved to New York. Right. And he I was, was a young man, you know, very young when he had a stroke. Unbelievable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was unable to use one of his hands to play his horn for mm -hmm. a long time. And another part of that story about, about the terrorists is that Dro tracked Roland down in Brooklyn. So Dro, this white man, was walking around Jamaican neighborhoods in Brooklyn looking for Roland. And he found him. He was working in a Jamaican patty uh, restaurant. He was, um, I don't know what he was doing there, but... Dro went in and said to Roland, you really need to start playing again and convinced him to come to a rehearsal. And, uh, you know, I think we have to give Dro and the terrorists some credit for getting Roland Alfonso back into playing uh, music again, because shortly after that, the Scottalites reformed a couple of years later and then started to go on tour again. You know, Mark, uh, I usually don't use this platform to tell story because this is your platform. But when I saw Roland in New York, now shortly after he came from Jamaica, he was selling records in a fish store. My brother knew him because my brother lived in Kingston and used to be around musicians. So that's Roland Alphonse, I cry. Oh. Uh, we'll leave that story. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, really struggling, selling 45s yeah. in Brooklyn. I said, wow, this is something is wrong with this society. Yeah, one of the yeah, greatest. Uh, uh, something is wrong. But uh, again, scatterized reform and they started getting less of work. Yeah. They, they, yeah, started, they, uh, yeah, they, finally, they finally had a chance to make some of the money that was cheated from them for so many years. They finally got that chance by re reforming mm -hmm. and touring again. Cheated from them at Studio One <laughs> and <laughs> other studios. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, so. so Let's let's uh, talk about the boilers now. They were formed in the 80s, influenced by many East Coast groups, and their members went on to play a major role in reggae, ska, and even soul. You once uh, saw them perform live, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I did. And, um, you know, I grew up in the New York City ska scene, so I have a lot of love and affection for all the bands that I used to go see before I picked up a guitar. Um, but the Boilers were a very special band. To In what me. sense? Huh? Um, they moved me. Um, first of all, they were all in high school, but they performed reggae music in a really authentic way, like a lot of the bands in, in, in this book I've, wrote, I've written. Um, their lead singer uh, was a guy named Oliver Reed. Um, so I think he was uh, biracial, so um, half Korean, maybe half French, but he took on the persona of a Rasta man in, in a lot of ways. And he channeled um, stories about New York, being a teenager in New York in the 1980s that I could, I could uh, relate to. And I think that was what was very special to me about the Boilers. A lot of New York bands were great. 
and they sang about girls and drinking and going out and getting into fights and stuff. But the, there was something about the Boilers that they tapped into more about what was going on in New York in the 80s. And not, not the rich people out of New York, but the struggling poor side of New York that again spoke to me. Um, and more importantly, there was just a very talented group of young musicians. Um, and uh, a few of them have gone on to be sort of leaders uh, mm. of, uh, and purveyors of really great American ska and reggae music. There's a guy named King Django, uh, Jeff Baker, who's got his start in, in um, the Boilers. He was a trombone player and a singer. Um, there's a guy named Victor Axelrod, who has gone on to great things. He, yes, uh, that he name ring a bell. Yeah, he is, he's a, a tremendous piano player. And um, he's gone on to be in Sharon, um, the Daptones. He was in the right. Daptones. Um, but he was also in um, Antibalis, which is an Afrobeat band. Um, there's their drummer, Patrick Dower, was an incredible reggae drummer who played drums on a lot of the Easy Star, All Star releases. So all of these people were so, I could see right away when I watched them, there was something special about them. And that's been borne out by the fact that a number of them have continued to be musicians and for the most part to play, you know, Jamaican music. Right. Uh, who are some of the other significant early New York area reggae groups? I know there's one, uh, Moniaka. Most of the members, if not all, were from Jamaica. Uh, you came across that name in your research, Moniaka. I did not, no, but that's mm. educating me. Thank you. Because that's what that's the only band I knew when I was back there. It doesn't mean these other bands uh, didn't exist, but I had no way of knowing about them. So Maniaka was big mm. in New York. It was another band. The name is escaping me now. Um, but I know a couple of the members were from Jamaica because I used to see them at record stores. Sure. Uh, yes. But uh, yeah, I think Jamaica expatriates. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Any, any other band out in that got left out uh, because of space from the New York area? Uh, no. You know, what, what I wanted to do was I actually put a couple bands in, in my book who um, they were special to me but they didn't get out of New York, but there was something about their stories that were very New York specific. So there's a band called The Second Step. There's a chapter about them in my book. There's a band called The Beat Brigade. There's a chapter about them in my book. Um, I, I really wanted in some ways to make sure that New York City got some love and attention for its scene in the, in the 80s, <clears throat> because a lot of the narrative about American ska recently has been very focused on the West Coast. And I think that's great. Uh, California is, is really the birthplace in many ways and the heartbeat of, of reggae and ska music, American reggae and ska music. But I wanted to make sure that New York <clears throat> got some love as well. So there are bands in my book that you might not normally have ever heard of. And if I hadn't written chapters about them, you still wouldn't know about them. So I was a little bit selfish because I wanted people to know their stories and in many cases their stories are important because new york city went through some very significant changes in the early 80s and these groups of young people uh these bands reflected what was going on you know at that time this is when you know i hate to say his name but this is when donald trump began to buy a property and and to um you know to take over 
big parts of the city. This is when Wall Street began its ascent, you know, in American culture and, and the city became this capital of sort of American capitalism. And before that, New York was a place where um, working class people could live and afford, uh, you know, to, to live in Manhattan, you know, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these kids were from those from those families. And so I felt it was important for their stories to be told because they reflected a time in New York that doesn't exist anymore, but that in my mind, I experienced it was very important is when artists and creative people could actually afford to live in New York City, you know, and that you could be an artist and a musician and there was a way and a, a way for you to have that sort of lifestyle. That doesn't exist anymore. It, it, it flourished in the 80s with these bands. And so I wanted to make sure that that New York City as a as a character in this book is very important for me to to have you know that story told as well. And equally as important, uh, women. Uh, there were a number of prominent uh, women, musicians and singers who contributed to the early scene. Please talk about some of these female artists and their bands that you wrote about. Sure. Um, one of the women who, who I think has an outsized role but doesn't get enough respect is a woman named Vicki Rose, who was the bass player of the Toasters. I think we all know who the Toasters are. You know, the, one of the longest running American ska bands. I know you had Rob Hingley on. Yes, ma'am. So, mm -hmm. you know, your listeners and uh, viewers know a bit more about his story and the Toasters story. But Vicky was the first bass player for the Toasters. And um, I think it's, it's important for, for that first version of the Toasters, which was I focus on, um, you know, is not a, a version of the Toasters that I think gets a lot of attention. Rob mm -hmm. deserves a tremendous credit for, for what he's done for popularizing American ska music around the world and you know for being the leader of the toasters. Um, but he couldn't have done that without other musicians. And at least in the beginning, he certainly couldn't have done it without Vicky, who was a very talented bass player. And um, the, the two of them, um, along with some of the other original members, are really responsible for giving birth to that band. You know, when the toasters started, they were more of a reggae band. Mm -hmm. um, Vicky was in another band that that was into reggae. And so the toaster started out playing slower ska. Um, as time went on, that sped up. And, you know, uh, the toaster sound became American ska music, which is a very high beat per minute, much faster. You know, the drums uh, with a side stick becomes much faster. But originally they were a reggae band. Um, I think that's notable. And, and what was notable also is that, that they had a woman in the band. You don't see more recently there are more women in ska. But... American ska bands were mostly boys clubs back in the 80s. And, you know, in some cases they were mixed, but they're not often women and certainly not women of color. Um, but but Vicky, Vicky is an important role model for, for women musicians in the 80s. Um, there was a woman, there, the Bim Scala Bim had a number of women in their band. The version of the band that I remember was a woman named Jackie Starr, who was a great singer and a great counterpoint to Dan Vital, who is the lead singer for Bim Stella Bim. Uh, she deserves credit also for helping to popularize American ska music. Um, and back out on the West Coast in Fresno, California, there was a band called Let's Go Bowling. And mm -hmm. um, the first version of the band had um, uh, a woman saxophone player whose name is escaping me at the moment. I uh, pardon her, for, forgive me. Um, but um, I wanted to make sure that all of their stories 
were uh, included in this in this book. Um, more recently, I have played in bands with women, and they have been better bands than the bands I played in with only men, because I feel like women musicians bring a different perspective, they bring a different energy, um, a different attention to detail, and um, uh, you know that's that's important. Um, it's a good balance. You know, Pauline Black once told me that two tone wasn't just supposed to be about black and white people. It was supposed to be about men and women as well. Unfortunately, in her opinion, and I agree with her, two-tone did not fulfill its, did not live up to its uh, um, goal of, of men and women as well as black and white together. And so I think that's, you know, I had that in my head when I started this book that wherever possible, I wanted to make sure that women's stories were included. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Now, through your research and interviews, why and, and are our own, what year did ska bands begin to incorporate more punk elements, not just soul and mud and two-toned punk? Yeah, um, that starts <clears throat> kind of in the era where my book ends. So my book, <clears throat> look at the bands in my book, it roughly starts from about 1975, when the Shakers start to about 1993, uh, when there was a ska movie tour which um, toured one of the first packaged all pack all ska tours to go around the country. Shortly thereafter is when all the hard work that these bands did begin to influence the bands that come in what is now called the third wave. Um, so, uh, you know, a band like Rancid, the members mm -hmm. of Rancid were in the audience seeing the <clears throat> uptones. Um, a band like the Mighty Mighty Boston's mm -hmm. in the audience watching Bim Scala Bim. Um, a band like Mustard Plug and the Suicide Machines were in the audience watching a band from Detroit called Gangster Fun. So all the bands in my book did a lot of hard work and went out on the road and spread the gospel of American ska. And all these kids who came later saw those bands and then said, what can we do that's ska music, but a little bit different? And, and at the same time that they were doing that, punk was having a resurgence in America. So in the mid nineties, you have bands like Green Day, some 41 who are bringing punk guitars in. And so you started to get a mix of these bands mixing in hard rock and punk guitars with ska rhythms, which is a uniquely American thing. And I think a lot of people think that ska music in America started around 1995 with No Doubt and Real Big Fish. It started much earlier than that. And that's why I think my book is important because yes. all the bands that people associate with popular American ska music take all their cues and are completely influenced by the bands in my book. So, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's my statement about that. I, I you know, I think um, the great thing about ska music, Junior, is that it's mutable. You can mix different genres with a ska bassline and drums, and you can try many different things and create something new. But the, the bottom line is that, that it's always going to have elements of ska in it. You can put loud guitars over, over reggae. It's still, to me, reggae music. You know? So that's what's interesting about it. That's what makes it, I think, go on and on and on, and why it's still relevant in the 21st century is that people can experiment with ska and reggae rhythms and still create something fairly new and innovative. Yes, sir. And uh, 
what were the three top festivals or pop culture moments or even compilation albums that uh, you feel were crucial for growing the American ska scene over the years or even during inception? Yeah, I, I'm not gonna remember the names of, of all of these, but I'll do my best. I mean, um, both- Your best is good enough. <laughs> both um, Rob Hingley of the Toasters and Dan Vital of Bim Scala Bim were big proponents of creating compilation albums. Mm -hmm. So they would ask bands to, to share one song. And so what they did was they would be able to put together a, a collection of songs from bands at that moment in time. And so if you were just getting into ska music, these ska compilations were a great way to hear music from all over the country. Um, you know, one of them was called Scarface. That's an album that Rob Hingley put out that had a mix of bands from all over the country. That mm -hmm. album came out in 1988, and I think it's probably considered one of the, the most important ska compilation albums. Um, Dan Vitale of Bim Scala Bim put out a whole series called Mashing Up the Nation, which are again, compilations of American ska bands. So I would say all of these compilation albums helped give bands all over the country um, mm -hmm. an opportunity to be heard, but also help to spread, you know, the, the love uh, around. So mm -hmm. to me, you know, there's so many of those compilation albums that were, I think, important for popularizing American stuff. Wonderful, sir. So I want to ask you before I introduce uh, Eric, you mentioned compilation. This compilation CD comes uh, with your book. And there's for a reason I'm holding it up so that people can buy it. <laughs> Uh, I'll get it. Tell us a little bit about the uh, compilation here. Sure. I'm quite sure uh, you must know a thing or two about it. I, I do. Um, Chuck Wren uh, yes, sir. Is, a, is an important man in American ska. Mm -hmm. Chuck has also devoted his life to his passion for the music and for reissuing or putting out vinyl specifically, mm -hmm. but also other things, CDs and cassettes. But, but I think his passion is vinyl. Um, but Chuck has been a one-man record company for many, many years and uh, deserves a tremendous amount of credit for, for all he does. But he contacted me when I uh, was working on the book and uh, interviewed him for, for a chapter on Gangster Fun because he's from Chicago and he had a, you know, has, has DJed at so many Midwest ska shows, you know, too many to count. But he said to me, uh, let's do something really interesting with your book. Why don't you let me curate a CD of deep cuts? He has so much vinyl. He said, I wanna do private label bands from the eighties because I agree with you, Mark, that ska music did not start in 1995 and 1996 in this country. It started in the eighties and I have all this vinyl to prove it. So what he did was he took all these deep cuts and created this CD as a way to um, demonstrate mm -hmm. that this music has been around for a long time and that its roots are in the eighties. So I don't even have the, a lot of people have been asking for the track list for this. He didn't, he didn't put a track list on it, which I thought was- Deliberately? He did not put his track. So if you put this in your CD player, no track list comes up, which I think was very sneaky of Chuck, but he did that on purpose because he wants people to listen to it. Um, but we are gonna release the track list I'm going to do a podcast interview with him shortly where mm -hmm. he will reveal 
the bands on there. But I think it's been a really a great way to um, get people to buy the book and to get excited about, you know, ska music, American ska music from the 80s. Yes, sir. So what exactly do you want people to uh, take away from your book? Um, <clears throat> I think the most important thing, there's a couple things. First of all, if you don't mind holding the book up one more time. Um, With all pleasure, sir. The, the cover is very important. There's a message and, and a story behind that. That's Clyde Grimes. He was a guitar player for the Untouchables. Um, I felt it was important I, for a couple of reasons to have Clyde on the cover. First of all, I think the Untouchables um, were probably one of the most important American ska, mod, soul bands to exist. And what they did in Los Angeles was very monumental. Um, you know, a predominantly black band, but black and white people together, which you didn't see in LA at that time. Um, and, and also that picture for me is representative of what American ska music, uh, the symbol of it, the energy of it, the power of it. But also it's important to note that Clyde is a black man. And I wanna make sure that people realize and understand that the roots of this music that we all love is from Jamaica, a black country. And, and it's a black art form and a black music form. And so it was important. The great thing about American Scott Jr. is that it's the bringing together, at least in the early days, of black and white people. <clears throat> Two-tone, you know, was mm -hmm. so influential for, for many of us and for Clyde too. And so I wanted to make sure that people recognize that and understand the role that black, Ameri black American people also played in the history of American style music, um, but also, that's just a cool picture. I mean, that is just one of the, like to me, You're not kidding. that is one of the most iconic American rock and yes, roll sir. pictures that I have ever seen. That's up there with like Chuck Berry and Elvis mm -hmm. Presley and Jimmy, um, um, Jimi Hendrix. Tell the truth. Clyde is like, was many of the people I interviewed in the book, people who went on to have huge careers like Hep, members of Hepcat and the Fishbone said to me, meeting Clyde was like, meeting a superstar celebrity. Like Clyde was one of the coolest, most down to earth people. And he was an amazing guitar player. So that's, if, if that's a question, my answer would be that that cover of this book is intentional. It's meant to send a message to people, not only to look cool, because I think it's pretty eye-catchy. If you, maybe you walk by my book and say, wow, I want to take a look at this. Look at that picture. Um, but there, there's, there's a subtext to, to that picture, which is, you know, there's a lot going on in this country in the 80s. It was, you know, it's a lot. It's it was just as bad back then as as, as it is now in terms of yes, sir. Uh, and I think the subtext is is so telling. Wonderful. Uh, I want to introduce Eric Fowler, uh, producer and good friend. Now he has some questions from fans that he wants to um, get your take on. Hello, Mark. Hey, good. how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's been a long day, but I'm still yeah. going. <laughs> no, I'm loving this. And then, uh, Junior, thank you for uh, for some uh, really insightful questions. You kept, you, you, you kept me on my toes, man. That was <laughs> Thanks to Eric, man. He has he's, he has me on my toes as well. No, 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 no. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a group effort. But, but Mark, congratulations. On, thank you uh, on an amazing book. I, I I'm I'm loving it. I've uh, I've uh, I'm still in the middle of, of reading it. Um, I love your podcast, and I was. I was late to the Marco uh, on the base blog, and uh, but but I, I know that a lot of our viewers and listeners know of you from your blog, which is which uh, 
you've been doing for so long. And the first question is related to that, actually. Um, what was the most, in your opinion, the most obscure band that you wrote about on your blog over the years? There was a band from Arizona called The Extremes, who... Um, Not to be confused they, with Extreme. Right, exactly. Not to be confused with the heavy metal band from the late <laughs> right. No, the, the Extremes, X-S-T-R-E-A-M-S. -E um, they were fronted by a woman from Trinidad. And again, another group of rock and roll musicians who fell in love with reggae and ska music. And... Um, they were booked by Howard Parr at the On Club. And um, mm -hmm. they probably, they, that show at the On Club that they did was probably helped put the On Club on the map because um, oh. Howard was uh, successful in getting, I think, one of the newspapers in LA at the time to write a story about them and the fact that they were playing the club. And uh, that night it sold out. Like there, he told me there was like a line around the block to see them. But they reminded me a lot of like an American version of The Selector. There was like an, a real edge, a dark, a dark, some darkness to them as well. Uh, the band members had some issues with drugs and alcohol. So that was reflected <clears throat> in their experience, but they put on an amazing show. And um, uh, I got to, to know some of the members of the band um, when I interviewed them and wrote about them for my blog. And they sent me some of their music, which they did a demo for a major label that, that never happened, but the, the, those are lost recordings. They are unbelievable. Okay. So, but totally, you know, no one knows yeah. about the streams, but, but they could have been huge. Like had they had it together and not been bedeviled by, you know, drugs and alcohol and personal sure. problems. Yeah. Yeah. And on the subject of your blog, when did you start your blog? Um, I started the blog in 2008. I, my wife Eight? and I had 2008. 2008. Oh, so cool. my wife and I had our, our son in 2007, so I sort of had to stop playing music uh, to, to be home more. Um, and blogging seemed like a good creative outlet for me at the time. If I wasn't going to play music live, then I was going to at least uh, write about it. And so that, that was the beginning of, of, the, of the blog. It gave me a creative outlet initially um, for all this energy that I had. Sure. You know. Yeah, no, fascinating. Um, turning to the book Skaboom. Uh, on the two-tone side of things and then on the American band side of things, what were the, the bands that were name-checked the most that you heard most frequently as you interviewed folks? Um, the specials were name-checked by nearly everyone. Um, I think that's because if you were a teenager in 1980, um, you would watch Saturday Night Live, right? That's what you did. Yeah. Um, and the specials performed live on Saturday Night Live in 1980. And if you haven't watched that performance, it's available on YouTube. I, I recommend anybody right. listening, go and watch that. It's, um, they're, they're doing everything short of lighting themselves on fire during that performance. Yeah. It's, it's incendiary, that performance. I'm sure that there were some substances being used that added to that <laughs> performance. But um, you couldn't come away from that, watching that, without being impacted somehow. And if you were, a lot of people told me they ran out the next day and bought the specials album. You know, well, beyond that, their song uh, "Free Nelson Mandela" became uh, the 
soundtrack for the liberation of uh, Nelson Mandela, who was incarcerated. You would hear anti-apartheid era, that's one song that you would hear from coast to coast and outside of the United States. Like DJs in Jamaica wouldn't necessarily play American music, would play that song because it's so relevant. Indeed, I mean, mm -hmm. I, that, that, uh, that record helped educate me and many of my friends about yeah. what was going on in South Africa at the time. So all credit to Jerry Dammers for educating many of us about Nelson Mandela. Um, but Eric, to answer your other question, I would say it was probably followed by the English beat. I okay. think the English beat, um, particularly in California, sure. made huge, huge inroads. I mean, mm -hmm. as their star was sort of dimming in England, they became huge here in the US and they toured a lot in the US and particularly in California. Um, and uh, I know I got to see them when I was a teenager, right before they broke up and uh, mesmerizing live band. I mean, um, to see, you know, Ranking Roger was only two or, three, two or three years older than me. So when I saw them at 17, he was 20 years old and he was a rock star. Yeah. And, um, you energy. know, energy, energy. Yeah. energy and the beat songs were, were great pop songs, but there were also some social commentary there. So, you know, I'm a, full-fledged member of Gen X. So I think, you know, a lot of the people I wrote who are featured in this book are Gen Xers as well. And um, the English Beat were like a soundtrack band. They were on MTV, their videos were on MTV. That third album that they put out, Special Beat Service, was a, mm -hmm. could have been much, much bigger if a couple of things had gone differently. Sure. They played two Us festivals, yeah. which were absolutely, you know, 200, 300,000 people seeing them play. Sure. Um, so they were tremendously influential to many of us who started bands. I know when my band started, we wanted to, we wanted to sound like the English beat. Right. I learned to play the bass by mimicking bass lines and English beat songs, mm -hmm. the first and second album. So hugely, hugely influential. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I would just add one more band. I think a lot of, for a lot of us, UB40, early UB40 was huge, absolutely huge. A gateway to, to Jamaican reggae, Mm -hmm. But, you know, to hear English, English musicians with Jamaican, you know, Jamaicans as well in the band playing, you know, social commentary songs about life in England yeah. made a lot of us want to do the same thing, but commenting on life in America. You know? Yeah, I mean, personally, they were they were my biggest gateway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned pop. But we couldn't we couldn't get through this interview without talking about Cindy Lauper and the Hooters. Um, I had no idea um, until reading your book and, and even before that, listening to uh, your, your podcast episode about that. But, but will you talk about Cindy Lauper and, and the Hooters and uh, maybe don't give it all away because we want, we want people to be mesmerized, but will you just uh, comment on that? Sure, I'll just, I'll say two things so I don't give away uh, too much and you'll go still buy my book. Um, first, the Hooters were a ska band. I think that most people, don't know that. They started as a ska and reggae band. Again, uh, when Junior and I were speaking earlier, um, one of the members of the Hooters, Rob Hyman, was brought to Jamaica on a family vacation in the mid-60s when he was 15 years old, mm -hmm. at, the height, at the height of ska and, and rock steady in Jamaica. And he told me this story about they rented a car and they were driving around the island and listening to ska music. And he fell in love with ska music from hearing it on the radio 
in a, in a little Anglia car driving around the bumpy roads of Jamaica. And he pestered his parents to buy him um, the Scottalites' first album in a gift store at the hotel they were staying at, which he told me is still his most prized possession. He said if his <laughs> house ever caught on fire, the first thing that he would grab would be that <laughs> Scottalites album. Not his passport or his bankbook. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, which is halfway between New York and Philadelphia, so I could pick up Philadelphia radio as well as New York radio. And um, the Hooters were huge in Philadelphia. And a lot of their early records that were played on the radio were ska. They did a ska rock version of um, a Don uh, Drummond song. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, it's been a long day. I'm not remembering the title of the song. But the fact is they replaced his trombone with a guitar. And so you would see these sort of white working class kids packed into a club and there were the Hooters playing you know, ska and reggae covers. Um, and, and bringing ska and reggae music to a crowd of people who are probably more into like, you know, um, Bruce Springsteen mm -hmm. and Tom Petty and things like that. But, but they were opening their ears to this. Um, and then the Cindy Lauper connection is that um, they were, went to college with a guy who ended up being an A&R man at Columbia Records. And um, she signed a deal as a solo artist and they needed a, some musicians to be her backing band. And he brought them down to see she, they brought her down to see them and she was blown away by their ska and reggae sound. So initially wow. she was interested in having much more ska and reggae into her songs than ultimately ended up being the case. I mean, major labels can do that, you know, to you, they'll take right. away. <laughs> but um, yes. that's what I'll say is that, you know, that, that they brought that initial sound to her. And if you, again, if you go online to YouTube, you can find demos of the songs they worked on with Cindy where you can hear definitively ska keyboards, ska drums, things like that in, in yeah. some of the demo mixes of the early songs that, that ultimately went on to be what we know today. Yeah, I definitely recommend that. It's crazy. Yeah, Cindy Lauper first, I grew up a big wrestling fan. So first she dabbles in wrestling and now I find out about reggae and ska. <laughs> yeah, she, funny. she uh, it's funny. I, it's great. I had the, um, I professionally have the, I've had the opportunity to work with her a little bit. So I've chatted with her about this and asked her about reggae. And she said, I love reggae. I think I sound like Ica Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> the world's thought, you know what? Not, not many people can say that. High pitched voice, you know, yeah, very unusual voice. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, another question. And this is, this is one uh, full transparency. My question. Uh, so, so reggae, U.S. reggae bands were for, or were formed by and large before U.S. ska bands. Is that is that is that fair from your research? And and but in the '80s, and when you talk about, we've heard a lot about '85, and you know, with the release of, of you had Fishbone, you had um, Untouchables, you had um, the Toasters, all releasing albums in such a significant year. Um, some of Untouchable songs, and I think some of Fishbone songs, got some radio play um, yeah. back then. But it wasn't until this is at least from what I gather. And Jimmy, tell me your thoughts. Big Mountain was one of the first big American reggae bands that were from San Diego, and that wasn't until uh, mid eighties. Late, I think, more like late eighties, maybe. Um, mid to late. Yeah. Um, did did ska in your opinion why didn't why didn't u.s and american reggae 
hit earlier, more more in the mainstream and like with radio radio play? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I I think because uh, reggae by and large is, is 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 a bigger, you know, so form of music than ska. Yeah, I I think you know the the chapter on the shakers is pretty instrumental in in helping to answer that question. I I, I think the the fact was that. Initially, American audiences could not wrap their heads around reggae. The reggae rhythm in particular was confusing, not only to American musicians, but to American audiences. Mm-hmm. You know, um, rock and roll is on the two and the four. Reggae's on the three. And, and so initially, if you can't, if you can't grasp that, it, I think it sounds foreign and unusual. Now it's not because we've heard it so much, but if you, if you transport yourself back to America circa 1975, you know, you'd occasionally hear, like you pointed out, Junior, you hear Millie Small in the 60s and the Israelites was played on American pop radio in the late 60s. And Paul, Paul Simon had a, you know, had a hit with Mother and Child Reunion where he was backed by a, I don't know, remember which reggae band it was in Jamaica at the time that he, he tapped to back him. But other than that, you didn't. Johnny really... Nash, though. Johnny Nash uh, got Johnny on Nash, television. Yes. He was yeah, huge. Yeah. He helped to popularize reggae. And right. he was featured regularly on television. As a matter of fact, he was referred to as the king of reggae. Ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, before Bob Marley. Yeah, everybody. Yes. Thought... And before the Hard Day Come soundtrack. Right. Um, but other than that, Eric, I don't think people heard reggae. Yeah. So, um, and I think the political component of what at the time was becoming 70s reggae, which was becoming slower and, and much more complex about issues in Jamaica, was also hard for Americans to, to wrap their, Good. their head around. Good observation, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I yeah. mean... Oh, well, no, I was just going to say, but then, yeah, you had so many from the UK, I mean, between Still Pulse and... and, and well, it's like, that's a great point. I yeah. think what, what's... what's Even Oswald, and you had a number of... Right. Yeah. But what's, what's interesting there is that you had indigenous Jamaican communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Jamaica, I've always thought, and you tell me what you think, I've always thought that reggae and ska were the Motown of England. So that you had, in certain neighborhoods, you had black and white families living next door to one another. So white kids would hear reggae and it wasn't strange and it wasn't unusual. It was the soundtrack that they grew up to. We didn't have that here. We had Motown, we had soul. So reggae... <coughs> maybe just didn't fit into the equation yeah. the way it did in England. Yeah, mm-hmm. great, great point. And then a lot of the musicians, they were first, first generation British. So they heard the music at home. True. In True. America, that was a luxury. Right. Exactly. You know, again, the, the music came 72, they're about by way of the harder they come. Yeah. So it's totally foreign, totally yeah. strange. With one exception though, New York City had a uh, all the reggae station on the AM dial, WLIB, and on Sundays there were a couple other stations. So, the, but New York and New Jersey, uh, those, uh, yeah, the tri-state were the exception. Lots of reggae, but outside of that, next stop would be Miami. You'll hear, um, but it was, yeah, that's hard a great to hear point. reggae. That's a great hard point. Hard to hear reggae elsewhere. Yeah, I, that's another thing that came up in the book was often a lot of these musicians. Um, heard reggae on the radio and mm-hmm. were, were and that was their also their introduction to these all reggae stations but that was mostly in places where there was Jamaican immigrant communities right that existed so that there needed to be a Jamaican radio station 
so they could hear the music from home. And it was very limited. Again, New York was uh, the exception. And I think later on, Florida with a station named Wave. But New York was really the exception. They had a all-day all radio station. Yeah. I guess at night they had to lower their antenna or drop the frequency because of FCC rules. So if you lived in those days, you, you would hear reggae. Uh, right. It was a luxury. Right. Yeah, for me, it was like living in heaven when they started yeah, <laughs> seven <laughs> days a week. You know of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another question, Mark. So one of my other gateway bands, um, Culture Club. And, and some of their sounds. And so I need to ask you about a band that, that, that you're in, that you, that you formed, that one of these days I'm gonna see live. Either, either, either you come out here and play or I go out there and see you. But talk about Rude Boy George, um, which I'm fascinated with. Sure. Um, well, what I think was interesting um, when I was growing up was that uh, Two-Tone was grouped in with New Wave. So I grew up in the New York area and I could occasionally tune into WLIR, which was this uh, 80s new wave station uh, in Garden City, Long Island. And they were pretty much responsible, uh, them and along with the station in LA, uh, is it K-Rock? Yeah. yeah, those two stations together popularized what we now know as new wave, but basically new British music. Um, they would actually send a DJ over to England and pick up import records. They literally would make somebody fly over there every two weeks and bring all these records back that you couldn't get here in the US. And in those records were the specials and the English Beat and the Selector, along with Duran Duran and the Human League and so on. And so ABC and so on and so forth. So for many of us, uh, two-tone and hearing ska was mixed in with new wave. Uh, at least it was for me. Um, so a couple of years ago, I used to have a conversation with Steve Schaefer who wrote the introduction to, to my book. Steve's very similar to me in terms of the, his, his taste in music. And he used to say to me over and over again, we should really create a band that does ska and reggae versions, a new wave. And we would laugh about it. Yeah, we should do that, we should do that. And he kept pestering us. Um, Roger Apollon, who's my uh, musical partner in crime. Um, and one day we finally said, you know what, let's just do it. Let's just try it as an experiment. So we invited a couple people and we picked, I don't know, I think three or four songs to just test the theory. Could this actually work? And we were kind of surprised. It actually, <laughs> not, not for every song, but for certain songs, sure. um, certain new wave songs lent themselves pretty nicely to being reinterpreted as a ska and reggae song. So what started sort of as a lark and, I wouldn't say a joke because we liked what we were doing, but not something we considered very seriously. Suddenly started to get very popular. People liked hearing new wave reimagined um, in a ska and reggae format. And for me, it was like a dream come true because to me, it was like the marriage of the things, the two things I love most. Um, so that's how it all started. And um, we've been going, we were together now uh, about eight years, wow. which is sort of hard to believe, but um, yeah, it's fun because um, each song presents a new op an opportunity and a new way to reinterpret it. You never know. Should this be a reggae song? Should this be a ska song? Yep. Should this be a third wave, uh, you know, ska punk song? So that's what I like is the, the creative possibilities uh, and, of each song. Yeah. And timing's perfect, obviously. Nostalgia is in, as they say. Junior, right. uh, I'm gonna steal, it's yes, my sir. turn. Yeah, it's, it's my turn now. Um, your book? Uh, 
as we're coming to a close, Mark, where can where can people find out more about, about you, about your book, about uh, Good Boy George, about any of your other projects? Sure. Um, right now, the book is available from uh, DeWolf Publishing. That's D-I-W-U-L-F, DeWolf Publishing. Uh, you go to their website, DeWolf.com. I think um, the book will eventually be available on Amazon, but honestly, uh, I would rather have people support an independent publisher right now and give more money to uh, a guy who wants to just fly into space for 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 ten minutes. Um, you know, we need to support independent record yes, labels like Chuck Wren's Jump Up Records and mm -hmm. publishers like DeWolf. So, you know, I hope if you still haven't gotten the book, you want it, go go get it from DeWolf. Um, and uh, I do a podcast now, um, uh, which is a kind of a companion to the book, where I try to tell some of the stories in the book, but also to spin off things from that. And that's called the Scott Boone podcast. So people can find that on any platform where you get, or where you listen to podcasts. Um, and then I'm on a, and there's, yes, please, please go to jump up records. Chuck Wren deserves your, your uh, support and your money um, for what he does. Um, um, but you can find me online. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, you know, you want to talk, you want to ask me a question or anything. <clears throat> Feel free to shoot me a note. And 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 Instagram has brought us together, Mark. And, and uh, uh, we didn't talk about this in advance, but, but maybe we just maybe we could just tease that there's some there's something in the works that the three of us, along with Howard Parr, who, who you mentioned earlier, who played such a significant role in the birth and popularization of, of Scott and, and mod music. But some something's in the works here in the Los Angeles area for for this fall. So uh, stay tuned uh, as as we work out some of those details. But uh, Mark, anything that we did not touch on? Anything, any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our, our viewers and, and listeners um, with? First, just thank you to you both. It's uh, an honor, uh, Junior, finally, uh, even though to meet you remotely, I hope I'll get to meet you in person soon. Um, yeah. But thank you, thank you um, both for, for what you're doing. I, I'm, I, uh, even though I'm a New Yorker by heart, I have always sort of looked to LA as again, being sort of the heart and soul of the American ska and reggae scene for many, many years. So um, I love what you're doing about documenting the history of LA ska. So um, my hat's off to both of you for doing that. I, I, I feel kinship with you both because I think we're, we're trying to do the same thing, uh, the three of us, which is really to educate people about the history of the music, because if you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going. So. Um, so true. But yep. but LA LA really plays an important role in, in American ska and reggae mm -hmm. history. So I'm very impressed and and uh, excited about what what you're both doing. So thank you mm -hmm. for that. I I would just end by saying to anybody who loves ska music, it didn't start in 1995. Um, it started much much sooner than that. And the stories of those people who who started are in this book. So I hope if you're if you're truly interested in understanding the history of American ska, then, then please consider uh, getting this book and, and learning the history and the important stories of these people. And, you know, many of them um, devoted their lives, their, you know, years and years of touring and recording music without any, you know, necessarily expectation of, of making a living uh, from, from doing this because they love the music so much. So, yeah, so, so true. they deserve our, our credit. They deserve credit and respect from us. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for that, Mark. And, and uh, yeah, we, we enjoyed talking with, we had Jerry yes. Miller on 
when we were doing the IGTV um, series last year. That was one of our first interviews, and uh, Jerry's fascinated. There are some fascinating stories there from from him. But um, yeah, thank you for your, your kind words, Mark, and congratulations again. And we do encourage everyone. One last time, Mark is thanking Mark Wasserman, author, blogger, uh, bassist, uh, Scott enthusiast, um, and now historian. And, and uh, um, it's such a it's such an honor to have you, Mark and Junior. Thank you for all your yes interview skills and knowledge and, and tidbits that, that, that you always share here. still learning so, as you go along <laughs> um, yeah mark uh thank you again mm -hmm. thanks mark appreciate everything mm -hmm. thank you very yes. much guys so i want to uh remind our listeners so please follow us on history of Felicia on instagram subscribe to our youtube channel and join our facebook group this series is produced by my good friend here, Eric Kohler, for Rockery Radio. Please follow at Rockery underscore radio on Instagram for fresh rock, rhythm, soul, and Jamaican music-inspired daily playlists. Thanks again for your support. Thanks to our viewers and listeners. Thanks to both of you. Yes, and we'll leave you one last time. Amazing. We can't show it enough. Very Mark. important. Yes. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. So all right. Absolutely. Yes, Thank you, Junior and everyone. We appreciate all the support and take care. Bye -bye. Take care.